You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of these crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist of the Harvard School of Public Health. And Dr. Mark is out. He's, I think he's on, is he on vacation? Oh, he's back in the hospital. I don't know. know, He's been all over the place, but yeah, I think he is. I think he's back (laughs) in the hospital this week. Okay. So he's out for a couple more weeks. He says, so he, he misses, misses us, misses everybody. Uh, How you doing, Steven? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? Good, good. It's been, uh, oh, guess what? Can I don't know if you can tell I'm wearing like short sleeve. Hey, it's not snowing anymore. No, it's spring. Oh my gosh. Finally. It is wonderful. Yes, yesterday was like 78 degrees. Went for a walk. We were out in the backyard making the backyard look nice. Rev up for Mother's Day because if everything goes well, our first time being inside with our mother-in-law will be on Mother's Day. So Amazing. we'll uh, do it then. Yeah. So this is really exciting because then my wife will be two weeks and we'll be all getting fully, fully vaccinated by then. So it's uh, super exciting. A little, little nervousness just because it's an, it's just a different reality, and we're always trying to be careful with with our mother in law. But the boys are just like beyond excited. It's all they talk about. It's like the best day ever. It's like Christmas times like a hundred. Yeah. Like what Nana is going to be inside so she can play with our trains? I'm like, yeah, she can. So we're really excited. We're getting ready for that. So it's a beautiful weekend. I love spring. A lot of hope in the air. We have a lot of stuff to cover. So a few things to get started with. Normal stuff. Uh, we love reviews. Had another review. Sorry, I was going to read it, but I forgot to put it in put it in my show notes. So I'll do it next week. It was so inspiring. So thank you. So we could always use more reviews. We love them just to keep us going. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. There's a couple other venues that, that offer those kind of written ones as well. If you want to support us, we'd greatly appreciate that. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month or a one-time payment Venmo Venmo or PayPal all in the show notes. Oh, no, one more thing. If you guys want to check it out, I dropped a new podcast uh, episode on Living the Real where I brought on, once again, my sister, Angie Long, which some of you probably remember back in like episodes like four or five or six. It was a favorite. We talked about one of the biggest reasons or problems that causes marriages and romantic love to fail and what to do about it. It was really inspiring for me, helped me out a lot. And we got a, a little freebie that we can send out that I've been using myself to help really cultivate deeper friendships uh, with the people that are closest to me. So if you want to check it out, it's in the show notes and we have another one coming up really, really soon. Okay. So we have a lot to cover. Let's get going about all this jazz. First thing is non-COVID related. Let's start with this just because otherwise if I fit it anywhere else, it's going to be just awkward. So it's just not COVID theme, but I read this, Stephen, game-changing malaria vaccine is 77% effective at stopping infection. Okay, so this is my utter ignorance. Clearly, I live in a first world country where malaria is not a really big issue because I don't really think about it every day. So I didn't know that we didn't have a vaccine for this. But so tell me about this. Is this really a game changer? Is this our first vaccine? And I guess the big, the bigger question for me is, is this related at all to the advancements in technology of what we've been doing with COVID? Yeah, so this is this is potentially huge. So malaria is really one of the big, big bad infectious diseases out there. It's one of the major killers, especially in developing countries, and it is it can be especially severe for young kids. So there's a ton of childhood mortality that's attributable to malaria, and so that, that's one of the things that contrasts it with COVID, for example, where essentially the risk profile from malaria is quite different than that from COVID, where COVID really is is tends to be much more severe for very old people. Malaria can be extremely severe for very young kids, which which is just it's just different. Yeah. That's just in my mind that that kind of yeah. 
that makes it just one more reason to really, really pay attention to it and to really try to tackle it. And so, yeah, so there, there aren't currently vaccines against malaria. We, we do have treatments available, but often those are hard to come by. Their resistance can evolve to those treatments. And so a vaccine has been a really, really important goal for malaria control for a very long time. And one of the things that I really like is that because of how much we've been talking about COVID vaccines, we can put this into context and say, what, where, where is this vaccine in its stage? How how promising is yeah. it? And so it's uh, it's basically just completed phase two trials. So that's basically okay. demonstrating safety and some degree of efficacy. It hasn't yet started the really huge trials. That'll be the real proof of its efficacy. So these are preliminary estimates of how effective it is. Yeah. But these estimates are good. Like we were suggesting for the COVID vaccine, we would have been thrilled with 60 or 70% efficacy. But thankfully, we got some mRNA vaccines that had upwards of 90% efficacy, which is just absolutely incredible. But even something with, with 70, 75% efficacy is going to be, if, if that holds through phase three trials, that'll be, frankly, a game changer for, for malaria. It'll save yeah. tons and tons and tons of lives. And so it's great news. This, this vaccine has been in development for a long time. It started development prior to the COVID pandemic. And so it's not necessarily building upon technologies that have been developed uh, for the pandemic per se, but I don't think it'll be long before we start seeing vaccines coming out that are like that, that build upon build upon the, the technology that really got spurred from the COVID pandemic as well. So I think it's great. I think that this is something that certainly my field was extremely excited about. And I think it's a good reminder, too, that COVID, COVID clearly is a huge international disaster, but it's not the only thing. It's And there are mm-hmm. a lot of people who have continued to be focusing on malaria, on TB, on HIV, and some of these things that have been huge contributors to mortality in many different parts of the world for a very long time. And those those deserve our, our sustained attention, too. And so I'm really glad that the that this has come out. And yeah, I'm just hopeful for more good news with, with some of these other infectious yeah. diseases as well. It's, this is a really interesting time to be in, in the world of infectious disease epidemiology. And we have, even after the COVID pandemic begins to subside, we're, we've still got a lot of, <laughs> we've still got a lot of things to, to, to tackle. Yeah. So. This is not the only thing on your guys' radar, yeah. but it's, it's probably dominated it for quite some time. That's great. I'm good. I'm really excited. This is, like we said, in March and April, we're bringing a, bringing up in, next generation, a really surge to use that word in a different way of like new profession, not new professions, but new desires. Back a year and a half ago, epidemiology, vaccinologists, immunologists weren't even in my mind. And now it's at the forefront of everybody's mind. And now seeing what needs to happen, I think we've been dragging our heels for quite some time about how to deal with the next pandemic. And uh, we're going to get there. We're maybe dripping our way slowly by funding it in ways by, to, but now I think we're just going to put all our money into this and to really exp- to exponentially grow to keep us from the next pandemic. So it's not so long. I know that we had record-breaking, record-breaking movement with the, with the vaccine, but we might skip here just for a second. It's down to further in the show notes, but we can talk about it is uh, Atlantic came with an article about taking the, the pandemic seriously and how we need to take it seriously. And now, and they, they did a great job because because that seems like a such a cliche statement. And what they mean by that? It's like, do we mean do we double our masks? No, it's not. That's not what they mean by that. Those are really short term solutions. Right. And what they're proposing is like, no, no, no. We need to take it seriously. Meaning, 
we need to, and this is not a joke, they're saying like, we need to get vaccines out within 100 days. That needs to be the goal. That's taking the pandemic seriously. And they mentioned that this is not, this is, this is not a random number, that this is based on a lot of data, information about how to be able to get there. And you're realizing that the mRNA, at least Moderna, I think, Moderna had their actually vaccine in, in 48 hours, like they're the, from the research, the, the, the thing was developed. Now, right. then the whole process took longer. I want to kind of throw it back to you and this idea of that's what it means to be seriously talking among your colleagues. And is that, is that, is that like a, a goal that you guys look at too? Or is that real, a real possibility? Because in light of phase one, phase two, phase three, all this stuff that happens, I'm guessing there has to be an enormous shift of how we actually do safety in vaccines because I don't see any other way by doing a paradigm shift. What are you guys talking about this idea? Yeah, it's it's this huge trade-off. There's definitely rolling out vaccines quickly is is hugely important for both preventing illness and mortality and it, preventing the spread of variants. Because again, the more the virus that's spreading, the more likely it is for the virus to pick up mutations that, that can cause it to evade the immunity that we've built up. But we 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 can't we can't compromise the the safety evaluations. We just can't. We we can, we can cut away the red tape. But we can't cut away the essential observation periods where we just need to follow people for long enough to understand if if they're going to show severe outcomes from the from the vaccine or not. So it's this really tricky thing. But I think that from from emergence of a pathogen to getting people vaccinated being 100 days, I think that that's still there, there's just no way to to actually speed up the trials enough to do that. But from post phase three trials to getting people vaccinated, that becomes a lot more doable because we can start ramping up vaccine stockpiles as the trials are happening. And and especially as, as we're thinking about mRNA vaccines, I think that our prior estimate of how safe these vaccines might be is going to be a lot more robust after this pandemic. Where before, since we, we'd, we'd used mRNA vaccines in, in many different contexts, but not quite on the scale that we'd used them for, for COVID. But now we have, and they do seem to be extremely safe as far as we can tell. And so there's every reason to believe that that safety, for the most part, should translate to other vaccines as well that are based on the same technology. So I think that there may be still some ways to speed that up a little bit more. And that's something we should be thinking about. But again, never, never compromising the safety. Sure. And I love what they talked about in this article because it almost took turned in my mind. Again, I'm the layman here. So my visuals of the future of vaccine rollouts are going to be what what's in my kind of purview. And what's my purview, even though I never watch the news anymore, I never watch the weather, but I feel like almost like a virologist weathermen and women We're like, mm-hmm. it, just like there's daily weather, a forecast, there, there's almost forecasts. We have such a robust system worldwide of examining. This is what I think they're proposing is that one of the first things we have to do is have a robust, robust worldwide system of constant monitoring of every possible, they said at least the dominant hundred like different kind of viruses, especially respiratory respiratory ones, because those ones seem to be the most crazy when it comes to transmission, that kind of stuff, that we're really having a worldwide, like almost weather station of mm-hmm. every possible examination so that we can almost see it ahead of schedule. We can't get everything, but we have a much more, we can be ahead of the schedule. And then one, I think in this Atlantic article, one strong credit to the Trump administration of like, then a similar warp speed kind of reality on a ma- on a major scale on a bigger scale that yep. we can keep this in systemic and that's the first couple steps so i was encouraged but that's what got me excited like these are the, the, the future of the little kids that are coming up i'm like they're going to be the part of this this worldwide coalition 
of little virologists and vaccinologists to help bring about this 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 powerful reality to, to prevent us from a worldwide long pandemic. It goes to another another article I read. We said about a month ago about how we were just pleasantly surprised about the decrease in uh, suicides. Right. On the on the flip side of that, a recent article came out here: the drug overdose death surge during the coronavirus pandemic. That was probably to be expected. There was a number a number of reasons, obviously, why fentanyl was 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 put on these drugs. I'm not sure the reason why, and that caused uh, overdose. But hearing that, there's another reason why we want to expedite this because obviously, the longer the pandemic, the longer we're isolated, the longer we're not in touch with community, the longer we go to places that are dark and dangerous and cause uh, harm to individuals and to a community. So excited about the future there. Now, another question I want to throw to you, Stephen. I read this article. I don't care about the article itself, but this this is a good question to, just to pick your brain for a second. It says, we know a lot about COVID-19, but experts still have many more questions. So besides the article, in your own mind, as you've gone from March until now in this past April, and you probably know, you clearly know a lot more about COVID, but as an epidemiologist, what are the still couple remaining questions you're thinking, what's going on here? I'm not quite certain about how this is working. Do you have any of those what are the main one or two that are in your mind right now? Yeah, the there are two really that that come to the forefront of my mind, and I think. It, but before saying that, I think, like you said, we've we've learned we learned so much. We've learned a lot about the mode of transmission. We've learned very quickly about the sort of the risk profiles, who's most at risk of severe disease, how it spreads, in whom it spreads, and yeah, just like how how distancing, how masking, how these different interventions play with with the spread of the virus. So it's 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 pretty amazing how much information we've amassed about this totally new pathogen over the course of a year. But the two things that I'm really interested in going forward are uh, first have to do with the evolution of the coronavirus. As as you before this pandemic, a lot of my research focused on the flu, and a lot of the epidemiology of the flu is dictated by the way that the virus evolves. Flu is this really interesting critter. It has this <laughs> genome that is split into a bunch of different segments which is different than the coronavirus, which is generally like one one single genome, uh, as far as I know. Uh, and b- since the flu is separated into different segments, it can shuffle those like a deck of cards. And that allows it to evolve pretty quickly and in these really surprising ways. And that's part of what's behind the way that flu pandemics behave and 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 a little bit about around what behind what's behind seasonal spread of flu as well. And so as we think about what's going to happen with the coronavirus in the future, we really need to know how evolution is happening. And that's sort of a curious thing because clearly we have on the one hand there's this one evolutionary time scale where it's just collecting mutations over time. But then we have these variants that seem to evolve much more quickly. They're like much more distantly related to their ancestors. And there are a couple of hypotheses as to why that might be the case, but uh, but we're not completely sure why there are sort of these variants that seem to seem to evolve more quickly than you would expect. And the question is, is one of the hypotheses that's circulating is maybe these are evolving in immunocompromised patients because they're able to carry the virus for a long period of time. It can pick up mutations and then it, uh, it's able to spread onward from there. Which is possible. I had a discussion with some colleagues last week as to you know, some of the evidence for and some of the evidence against that. If that's the case, then 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 we need to understand why that's happening, where that's happening, what we can do about it. If it's something else, what is it? We, and so I think that figuring out what those dynamics are, because that's going to be sort of the 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 workhorse that's developing these variants in the future, will be super important. 
The other thing I'm really curious about is the, and, and I think we'll talk about this in some of the discussion later on in the podcast as well, is why is it that these outbreaks of COVID seem to be so variable in their intensity, in their timing, in their location, their geographic scope? Why is it that India, for example, was really able to avoid a lot of the most severe outcomes from COVID for a very long time? And then all of a sudden, they're, they're seeing, frankly, the, the worst outbreak that we've had yet in the pandemic. Like this is, this is the most severe manifestation of COVID, as far as I can tell, that, that, that we've seen yet. Now, now that's, those are strong words, and I think that, that that's, you can make arguments that other, other times and other places have, have also seen equally or more severe outbreaks. But I think as a whole, the fact of what's happening across the country as a whole and the severity of it is just absolutely unbelievable. So, so why? Why now? Part of that story will have to do with the variants, and and so that'll tie into the first question. But but we saw these kinds of huge explosive outbreaks, for example, in northern Italy, prior to the the widespread emergence of these different variants as well. There seems to be something about the virus itself that causes it to just have these absolutely explosive epidemics in different places at different times, and we don't really understand what causes that timing, what causes that severity. And until we do, we won't have a good sense of how to prevent it. And so I think we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about that. Great note. A couple of follow-ups. You had the two questions, and the evolution, and then about how the virus randomly just attacks particular segments of a population or a country or a city. Now, you mentioned about there's something in the virus itself. Teach me on this for a second, because a couple of weeks ago, now again, I may have misunderstood it, that, or maybe Mark said that, we really don't know when it comes to variants. We really don't know anything about the virus itself when it comes to the variants, meaning like we can see the mutation, but how it's going to impact somebody else, there's nothing in the virus itself saying it's going to impact, it's going to be more dangerous. We just don't know it. We just know that it's mutated until we see its impact on a particular community. Then we say, oh, now you can correct me of all this is incorrect. The, okay, by that impact, clearly this mutation is much more infectious. But you mentioned that the virus itself might have something like when it comes to. So first of all, maybe clarify that. Is there something in the virus itself that can make it uh, clearly more dangerous that you can see on a, on a scientific level? Or do you have to always wait until its impact? Because that's why I'm thinking about it when it comes to evolutions and it's changing. How do you then determine that? How do you actually then find out how viruses evolve and then why sometimes they exponentially grow and otherwise is it anything in the virus itself that you can that we're just trying to look for or is it typically anecdotal evidence of just oh okay so now we reverse engineer that impacted Canada that way so we have to reverse engineer everything to actually determine about the virus or there is there things in the virus itself that we can learn about why they evolved this way why they particularly hit a demographic of people at a certain particular point in time does that make sense yeah, yeah. So there's, in terms of actually understanding the how how the genome of the virus maps to the way that it infects people and the way that it plays out in populations, we can get a little bit of information about that before we see it spreading in populations. And, and thankfully, this is some work that was that that was actually done sort of last summer, and some of what helped us to determine and identify some of these variants of interest and variants of concern. And so one way to do that is in the lab. It's to look at, in particular, the spike protein of the virus and the genetic sequence that codes for it. And in a lab, you can experimentally switch out base pairs in the genome, which can lead to differences in the amino acids, basically the building blocks of the protein in the, in, in the spike. And then in, in 
in dishes, basically in, in petri dishes, you can expose human epithelial cells. You can expose sort of the the cells that the virus infects to these mutated proteins. Now, these proteins are not attached to live virus, so there's no risk of it like creating a mutant and spreading outside of the lab. They've really done their work to make sure that we're not going to cause you know a second pandemic from this. That's great. But you can just take that bit of the protein and expose it and see if there are differences in how well it binds and how long it binds and what sort of infection it causes. And so that can give us a sense of which mutations we ought to be looking out for, even if they haven't really played out um, in the world. And that's one of the ways that we've identified some of these key mutations that are in the variants because we identified them in the lab first. And we knew that if these emerge in the real world, that could be a cause for concern. And in, indeed, that, that, that has been the case. The, those predictions largely have been very good. But on the other hand, the, the only other line of evidence that we have is to see something really emerge and then to ask what, what caused it. And that's a much more difficult sort of thing to do because everything there is then confounded by, d- did this particular variant just get lucky? Is it just have something to do with human behavior and what policies were in place at the time, what the weather was. And it takes a lot, a lot of effort to really tease that apart. The other thing is that, of course, it's usually when these viruses change, the the way that they behave isn't attributable to just one single mutation. Usually it's an entire set of mutations that then give it this particular type of behavior. And that's much more difficult to do in the lab as well, because the number of mutations that you could possibly test are just astronomically huge. And you would never be able to do that rigorously. I, I, this this get us off into a much longer tangent. There there are actually people <laughs> developing methods to figure out how to do that sort of thing as well, but that's there there are some complications with that too. So there are ways to figure that out, but it's but it's tricky, and so we have to see how things play out. Now that said, so we're talking about the attributes of the virus itself and what makes it more or less infectious. But I do think that with that first question, there there's an attribute of SARS-CoV-2 as such that sort of all of the variants share that give it this behavior where it has these explosive outbreaks and that it's not necessarily that there's a different variant or a different type of genetic sequence that's causing outbreaks in one place or another. I think that some of this behavior can emerge from what what essentially is we call in mathematics is this inherently unstable system or like a chaotic system where you're like riding on this uh, razor's edge of equilibrium where most of the time you're going to not cause an epidemic and and that's like where where the system likes to sit but once in a while some random fluctuation is just going to cause this huge huge shift and you're just going to enter this entirely different space which is a major epidemic and those events might be very rare but when they do happen they can be catastrophic and that can just emerge from the way that the virus itself plays with human behavior and different sorts of things. And I think that super spreading probably has a huge role to play in this as well, that probably the more likely a a pathogen is to super spread, the more likely the overall epidemics are to be these very chaotic sort of explosive types of things. But that's something that we need to explore a lot more before, before we can know for sure. Okay. I'm just hearing you say all these things just makes me feel like how maybe how lucky we are that you, I remember back in March and April, you were saying how COVID it's, it's harder for it to mutate or it takes longer for it to mutate. Now we've seen it. I'm like, would we ever have, would we ever have been getting ahead of the curve if this was something like a flu pandemic that, that can, that, that apparently can mutate much quicker and it hits the whole world and we're trying to build the vaccine over a year. And it's, if, if COVID-19 mutated this quickly and it's tough, help us. Am I right? The thing we, we lucked out on this one. Maybe. Comes to, yeah. I'm sure there's ones that mutate even less, but compared to what we could have had, 
this is a nice warning sign to help get our our our, our stuff in order to be able to iterate much quicker next yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, so like the measles virus for example is famously has a very stable genome. But it's extremely, extremely infectious. And so there's a trade-off there. So if we had something like a like a super measles that emerged or something, <laughs> yeah. and and yeah. you know, then that that would be very, very bad news. And it would be good that probably it wouldn't evolve as quickly, but but then there's the trade-off with infectiousness as well. So there's 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 all these trade-offs for sure. But you're right. I think that that the landscape would look very different right now if we had something yeah. that was evolving a lot more quickly than this. So now quickly before we move on, another question is is, is the trade-off is that like a principle by how viruses typically run? So typically if it's if it mutates much more rapidly, it has a tendency to be less severe or or is there no relationship between those two? It just seems that I could see how one thing's fast, the other thing's slower. It just seems how life works. One thing is efficient and that the at, at the expense of one thing that's slower. It'd be nice if it's the more deadly things are a little bit slower to mutate, or is that not a principle of science when it comes to virology? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that 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 doesn't. Yeah, the 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 correlation there is not probably isn't very good. So, for example, the on the other side of the spectrum, there's like HIV, for example, which mutates incredibly quickly, mm-hmm. very severe, but it's just like an yeah, entirely okay. different type of virus, and yeah. it's uh, just the way that it behaves. There's there's a reason we don't have a vaccine for HIV yet, and part of that is because of its 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 speed of of mutation. And so, yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I'm not sure what the trade-off there would necessarily be, but I don't think we can necessarily count on it being yeah. uh, totally straightforward. Oh, man, if only things were that well-oiled. I know, man. So much easier. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to another question that's related. I saw this article, what is a syndemic? Another new terminology that I had no idea. Probably another frightening reality. Now, I don't know if this is an exaggeration of, I think, claiming that we're in a syndemic or if they're using it in the proper context, but I think here... They're just mentioning the context of, look, we have COVID-19, but now we have so many different variants. It's it's now turned from a pandemic to a syndemic. So what is a syndemic? Is that actually a scientific term? And are we in that realm right now with all the variants going on? Yeah, I, I'm recalling now that I, th- I think we may have mentioned the term syndemic before on the podcast with oh. respect to the overlap of flu and the coronavirus, how oh, we were worried yeah, about we the two of them yeah. together. And that that could have been a syndemic as well. So so absolutely a scientific term. Yep. Other so we mentioned the COVID and flu syndemic that, that thankfully yeah. didn't really pan out because we were really worried about yeah. those two things interacting with each other. Other syndemics, for example, that that I think people pay a lot of attention to is, for example, HIV and tuberculosis. That's a really interesting one because since since HIV is a immunosuppressant virus, basically, it it causes the presentation of tuberculosis to be very different. So tuberculosis looks different in a person who has active HIV infection than a person who doesn't. And so that's part of what makes it a syndemic because not only is it two pathogens circulating in the same population, but the fact that they are together makes the dynamics of both of them look different than they would if each of them was individually there. And so in my mind, that's, that's really the hallmark of a syndemic. It's, technically, it's just when two things are co-circulating in the same population at the same time. But, but I think really oftentimes when that name is used, it's when two things either work through similar pathways. So flu and coronavirus, part of the reason we would have called that a syndemic is because both of them would have caused a strain on the same sorts of medical resources where you need ventilators, you need ICU rooms, you need oxygen, these kinds of things to to deal with severe cases of each. 
or things like HIV and TB, where where there's an interaction somehow between the two that is different than you would expect if it was just two totally unrelated pathogens circulating in the same place. Mm-hmm. So the question then is, can we call the co-circulation of different COVID variants a syndemic? I think there's an argument in both directions. I think that that it's on the side of, of no, this, that syndemic is an overblown term for this. It is It is still just one virus, even though it has multiple variants and it. it is generally has similar behavior. You generally get immunity to some extent to all of the variants if you've been infected with one of them, even though the level of immunity that you get differs. But there seems to be some level of protection, at least against the most severe disease to a large extent. But I think I think that that one could be justified in calling it a syndemic at this point too, because some of the variants really do have different risk profiles. They have different different odds of sending you to the hospital if you get it. They're able to evade immunity, which I think is really key as well. Because if you can get reinfected by a different variant, then then they really do start to take on distinct dynamics in the population. And in my mind, one of the other things is that if you have to start adjusting the way that you intervene depending on what the variant is, and you have multiple of these variants circulating at the same time, then, then, then you could reasonably call it a syndemic as well. And so I think that we could, we could mince words and, and decide whether we are or aren't, but, but that's, that's the idea. And I think that, you know, call, call it what you wish, but we do, we do have a complex problem on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. Yeah. Well, it seems like part of the complex problem has been, obviously, with vaccines, which we've been talking about, but also, finally, I think I'm right now, I even proofed it past you before we got on, at-home coronavirus tests hit pharmacies, right? Hey. This is it. We're here. We're here. We can, almost. We're here. <laughs> yeah, we're here almost. Yeah, so now you can actually go and go to your whatever pharmacy, and I think it's actually over-the-counter. You can get one. Here's one caveat. It is expensive as heck, man. It is $24 for a pack of two. So if you want to test yourself every day to be cautious, you might want to get a HELOC or something like that on your house (laughs) so you can pay for it. Seriously. But this is at least a good, good, a huge movement forward, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a big step in the direction that we needed to be going, needed to be going long ago, I think. Yeah. And the fact that these things are available is a very good thing, but gosh, we got to get that price down because they're, they're as good as, I'm not going to say they're useless, but Oh my gosh, the the value of these things is being able to test yourself regularly and to use them to to not have to worry about ah do I really want to drop 12 bucks just to just to know whether I'm infectious or not right now. That's mm-hmm. that's a lot. And so admittedly, I was I so they are available over the counter. I uh, I ordered one pack from CVS. It hasn't come in yet because I'm just okay. curious, but I was I was originally going to order two or three, and then I realized it was going to run me almost a hundred bucks. There's no way. I, I'm I'm an epidemiologist with sort of a, a vested interest yeah. in this kind of thing, and yeah. mostly I just want to see like what the packaging looks like. How hard is it to open the thing? Like what are I I want to know what, just like what what we're being faced with. And I, I almost thought it was my professional responsibility to order at least one sure. of these things. Mm-hmm. But one was all I could afford, <laughs> you know? and that's crazy because again, and and this gets into some of the other things that like so much of this pandemic has been an issue with socioeconomic disparities too. It's it's hit populations that are poor that have little access to healthcare resources already, and if you have a test that costs twenty four bucks a pop, that's your that that completely eliminates yeah. huge huge segments of the population to be able to test themselves who need it most. Yeah. 
Great that it's available over the counter. Huge step in the right direction. Super exciting. It's really nice to see it on the shelf. We got a lot more work to do. We got to bring the price down. And especially as as we're moving forward, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening in India and, and yeah. is this an omen for what could be happening later. And testing is going to remain a super important part of our response to this pandemic for many months to come. And so we need to get this sorted out. Yeah. No, that's, that's helpful because we're going to get in that segue here in just a second because I was going to Almost tongue in cheek. Like I was going to say, is this test at home too little, too late? It was, it was good. It would have been great eight months ago for the U.S. I'm thinking in a very self-interested right. way. In the U.S., is it too little, too late? I think you just answered the question. No, it's not too little, too late. It's way too expensive. The good news is in the article itself, it says that they really are working very hard to get it down to one to three dollars per test. I think ultimately they really need it to be $1 for sustainability. That's the only, yeah. to be able to get a 30 pack for 30 bucks is much more, it's, it, it, then you could test, that's, to me, that's yeah. 60 bucks for 30 days. Now we're starting to get a little, I'm hoping just $1. This would be a game changer. So let's skip right into that because let's put this in the context uh, of India, because this is the question I asked you before we, we got on. I'm looking at India. I, I want to get your kind of perception of what's going on in India. It sounds, from what I'm reading, just really the most tragic situation we've ever had of COVID. And from what I'm reading, which scares the daylights out of me, not necessarily for the US, but for India, that it's maybe far from over for India, that this is this this could continue, that they're not at their peak potentially, not even maybe close. And so my question to you is looking at India, seeing Brazil, now India. Now, from what you can gather, I know I've been down this road with you so many times, Stephen. It's complicated, so I'll I'll do the, do all the nuances for you that you can't give a definitive response. But is this like an omen? Is India an omen for the U.S. or for the rest of the world, or is it an outlier? Because that's what I want to know. Because now I know there's no clear cut answer for that. But if it had to gravitate towards one or the other, what evidence shows that India is either a potential omen for the rest of the world, or is a potential outlier for the rest of the world? And maybe we can throw in these tests, how these at-home tests could be a game changer for India. Right. Yeah, I want to echo just like the the what's happening with the COVID epidemic in India is, is just really, really awful and is, is among the worst that I've seen over the course of the pandemic. And it's, it's pretty crazy now that over a year into this, when a lot of the narrative here in the US is, okay, we can finally start to breathe a little bit easier. We're, we're emerging out of this. And then this, it's, it's, it's pretty sobering that we're seeing such a severe epidemic there right now. And yeah, I don't know if, if anybody's listening who is in India or who has family. I know, you know I have a number of friends who have relatives who live there and it's just like incredibly frightening and just like just like really, really hard. I've, I've been trying to stay caught up on the news. And I, again, I feel like it's like my responsibility to some extent to watch the interviews and just to see as, as, as clearly as I can what's happening. And it's it's just incredibly hard. Absolutely. My heart goes out to everybody who's like severely affected by this. It's it's just it's 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 really, really, really difficult. It's it's really hard to know how to place this in context for the rest of the world. It does make me pretty alarmed for for countries that currently don't have a lot of access to the vaccine. And that's generally here in the United States, we're incredibly fortunate to have a lot of our population vaccinated and the promise of having a lot more vaccinated. And we were able to do that relatively quickly. But I think I think really what this is an omen of potentially is is shifting into a new phase of the pandemic where there are going to be now huge international disparities in which countries are getting severe outbreaks. We may well see severe outbreaks in 
uh, in a lot of countries, countries that are developing you know, and and just that currently have don't have a lot of access to the vaccine. That's one of one of the difficulties in India right now is that they have about ten percent of their population who have been vaccinated, and it's just a massive, massive country, right? There are so many yeah. people to vaccinate. There, one point four billion, I think. Is right, what I looked at it's crazy. Right. And so I, I think I read the other day that they're they're vaccinating on the order of three million people a day, mm-hmm. which is similar to some of our best days in the United States, but also their country is four times as big. And so the relative rate is is substantially slower right now. And so one of the things is one of the things we're still trying to figure out is if part of this has to do with a new variant, if there's a variant circulating that that is behind some of this spread. Although some of it likely has to do with with the other that question number two that I was talking about earlier is that you never really know when it's your turn. And there's something about this virus that interacts with behavior, that interacts with policies, that interacts with just the random chance to some extent that just really allows it to, it's like this nuclear reactor meltdown that all of a sudden just spills over and creates this massive catastrophe. And that that may be in part what we're seeing in India right now as well. It's just because more large numbers of infections beget large numbers of infections. And and once once that train is rolling, it's really hard to turn around. It's difficult. So I think that the the outlook the outlook here in the United States and in many extremely wealthy countries has probably not changed much in light of this. I think that as we're getting vaccine rates higher, again, we still remain at risk of outbreaks. Some of the things that we've been saying in previous podcasts remains true. But I think that the the really sobering thing is that this it shows that just how much of the world is still at really high risk. This pandemic is far from over and it is just causing absolute devastation in in India right now and I think that we need to do everything we can to prevent this sort of thing from happening in other places as well. Now, thankfully, some countries have come to provide some aid. I know the United States, for example, has been sending rapid tests. They've sent personnel from the CDC, for example, to ass- to help assess the situation. We've sent raw materials for vaccine production. India is largely producing their own their own vaccines, and I, I don't know. I, I think that we're we currently have a stockpile of AstraZeneca vaccines, which still haven't been approved in the United States. India has approved essentially the equivalent of the AstraZeneca vaccine, but they've been producing it all within the country. And so I don't know if there are any issues with actually sending those vaccines over, but I know the U.S. has been sending the raw materials for producing the vaccines, which I think is at least a good thing in its own. Uh, in its own, and yeah, and I think the the more the more we can do to to do that sort of thing, the better. Maybe in the show notes, I can post some. I have some colleagues, epidemiologists who are in India or from India, have family in India, have reputable places where you're, you can send donations if you're interested. Where yeah. one of the big issues right now is that they're just low on oxygen. They need oxygen compressors, and hospitals are running out of oxygen for patients, and so that's really one of the the most acute needs right now. And so there are organizations helping to to eliminate to, to address that need. So we can include some of that in the show notes once it's over. Great. So you heard that from Steven. I'll put in the show notes at the top. If you want to donate, contribute that way. I know uh, Google and, uh, no, Amazon, I think. Amazon? Or is it, yeah, I think it's Amazon. I'm not sure. And Microsoft is, has promised commitment as well. And it's going to take uh, everybody to help with that situation. Our hearts and prayers go with them. And it affects, it affects the entire world, as you would say, in so many ways. Of course, the variants and what comes out of that. But just reading about 20% of the world's generic drugs come from India. 60% of the world's vaccines come from India. And when you yeah. lock down India, which is what a, what a, like a, a tragedy and to think of that 60% of the world's vaccines come from India and 10%. And that's a high number from what I've been reading is vaccinated. Much of what they do 
is for the sake of the greater world and not themselves. So it's a time for us to invert that a little bit and bring our resources available, which I'm glad to hear the White House providing the raw materials. I know another another one was export controls and raw materials we talked about. There was another one I'm trying to look at right now, the British, something about releasing some kind of trade organization to temporarily relax patent rights. Mm. So that as well, to, so that so that they don't have to be afraid. They can actually just do it themselves and get their own, get the, get the actual water formula and not being, being afraid of being sued down the road. This is a time where I think these are the times where we just release those things for the sake of the common good. And then we deal with rewinding those things when everybody's safe and, and everybody's healthy. Please check out the show notes to help support that. Let's come back to the U.S. for a second here and look at some good news of just seeing states with springtime COVID-19 surges appear to have turned a corner. So that's up your way, the Northeast. I, I saw you mentioned it too. And Massachusetts has been talked about as being the ones being hit, not as bad as Michigan. But it sounds like you guys are turning a corner up there. The things are slowly starting to, to shift directions to the better. And just going back and I in, in comparing this to California, California just now the lowest. I mean, the only the only other place lower is it's the lowest in the continental US of, of, of COVID, any kind of positive cases. It's just Hawaii is the only one that actually is lower than that outside of all of the US. Comparing those two, what do you think contributes to the upper Northeast and then California hitting it? I thought initially that it was just natural immunity, which could be a good sign that it works for the variants because up in Southern California just got drilled in the winter. And there's something about up to 50% are considered naturally immune, which is a pretty big jump to. Yeah. But so your feedback on the upper Northeast, how's it doing? And then its relationship to California of how how it's unaffected now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful that cases are starting to cur- turn the corner. Again, Michigan was one of those places that I was pretty concerned yeah. for. And, and they did see a really bad outbreak just now. And thankfully, cases seem to be turning around. Yeah, so I, mean, I think that with with the question of natural immunity, in a lot of places that have been hit really hard, we, we do have a fair amount of natural immunity. Northeast, certain parts of New York City, and certainly California, especially Southern California, there's just been a lot of spread. In the winter in Southern California, there a lot of that spread was included the spread of some novel variants that are now spreading across the country as well. And so absolutely natural immunity, especially natural immunity to those particular variants, is probably helping keep cases down in California right now. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, here in the Northeast, part of what's been behind our surges is those same variants coming in yeah. and making it a little bit difficult to control this spring. Yeah. But I think, again, vaccination rates are helping turn the corner. The weather's getting better, so people can spend more time outdoors and is helping a lot. People are keeping windows open. It's like these little things that that I think probably go a very long way towards reducing reducing the spread of infection. Yeah, I think I think again we're we're in this phase uh, we talked about weeks ago about how there would probably be especially due to the variants this long tail of cases and and we we have largely seen that across the United States where there hasn't been another huge surge across the country as a whole. Some places have seen one, but been this long tail that is longer than it would be if the variants weren't around, but here we are and hopefully cases are decreasing for good. No, and uh, but importantly, we're not out of the woods yet. I, I was speaking with some journalists over the past, I fueled a couple calls from journalists every week, but one of the things that's really been on people's minds is last year, we saw a lot of springtime epidemics in the northern US, and then it waited until summer for Florida and Texas and Arizona, for example, to really get hit hard, which is their indoor season. You know, when it gets really hot in Florida, you spend time indoors yeah. in the summer. I didn't think about that. Yeah. And so I think that there's, there is something still worth, you know, paying attention to there too, recognizing that all of the evidence is pointing towards that 
COVID spreads indoors way more easily than it spreads outdoors. And so we need to be thinking about indoor spaces, how to keep them safe, and recognize that the timing of people congregating indoors changes from place to place. And so for the places where people are starting to spend more time indoors now, we need to be keeping a close watch. So, yep. And that, that goes to this article I'll put in the show notes. I loved it. Vaccines alone will not stop COVID spreading. So I'm not going to, I'm not trying to make that being like, Hey, we're gonna be in this forever. I just love this idea of the Swiss cheese illustration that was brought in. Yeah. It was like brilliant. So I'm gonna put it in there. It's great. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. I'm sure you maybe even talked about it. Who knows? But I loved it where you have one slice with Swiss cheese has some holes in it. Apparently, do you guys know there's less holes in Swiss cheese now? Really? They're, they're, yeah, they're, they don't understand why, but there's there's some theories of why. This is like random, guys, but <laughs> there used to be way more holes, but there's less holes now. But anyway, side tangent, but there's some cool theories on why there's less holes. But nonetheless, there's there's holes in Swiss cheese. That's our next podcast, whole yeah. series on Swiss cheese. But then, of course, the more you layer the Swiss cheese, those holes overlap each don't overlap, and they start sealing in all the holes, right? So, of course, like the vaccine, very few holes in it. But but then masks and outdoors, these kind of things, the more we add in there, the more safety we put in, preventing ourselves from uh, being infected. So just keep that illustration in your mind as you begin to even do small things, even if you're vaccinated. Just the littlest things by just opening up a, a couple windows, right? Yep. It's like a whole other layer of Swiss cheese. And it was very easy. And it's a nice day, so might as well. Yep. I love it. I'll put in the show notes. Is there. And we'll put that as well. Let's hit the vaccines. A couple of these before we we, we close up shop. Millions of millions of people are skipping their second dose of, of COVID vaccines. Now, I think it's a little bit dramatic from when I went into the details. I want to throw this past you, but it sounds really intense, but it looks like 95% of people are actually following through with their second dose compared to, I know, I don't, I guess, again, you can correct all of this, that there's not very many vaccines that are actually two dosages, like within back to back. Apparently, uh, uh, what's the other one? There's a, oh, for older people. Oh, I wish I remember what it was. It is, forgot. Okay. I think too. Well, I'm more familiar with pediatric yeah, I know. vaccines. I but... Yeah, I know. I see it yeah. always on Safeway and grocery stores in the wintertime. But nonetheless, there's two dosages. And typically that one on a normal year is 75%. This is much higher than normal. So we should be pretty confident in this. Now that 5% includes, yep, maybe some people who are become hesitant, maybe because Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, that kind of got them a little nervous. And so they didn't want to follow through with their mRNA one. But largely it happens to do with, it seems either Walgreens, there's been some mishaps with all Walgreens, meaning that they get their first vaccine, which is Pfizer. They come back three weeks later and all they have is Moderna. And so they have to delay it. So more like logistical delays, sometimes being sick during that time, traveling, students moving from one city to the next, and then having difficulty getting their second one in a different city when they go back home. So it's complicated. But my my confidence level is high that I think obviously clearly 95% of people are getting their second vaccine. When it comes to the larger picture of the U.S. and in that kind of idea of people skipping their dosages, what kind of impact do you see, if any, when it comes to the U.S. and potentially variants? Because I think one of the things is, I think we talked about this theory at one point in time, that if somebody gets their first dose, this was, this was way back when we were talking about one dose and that's only and make it more widely distributed or two doses have less vaccine fully vaccinated. And one of the theories was be careful because what if, what if you only get the first dose and then you get infected, but somehow it mutates to be able to overcome that vaccinated response. And now we have this crazy mutation. Is that still a consideration or is there any kind of fear about that in, in light of millions of people skipping their second dose? Yeah, I think that it's, there. there is still some concern around that. The virus can 
evolve and mutate and develop the ability to evade our immunity, whether or not we've gotten one or two doses. I think that one dose might make it a little bit more likely. We can we can compare to the strategy in the UK, which has largely been to vaccinate as many people as they could with the first dose and de- delay the second dose mm-hmm. until there were, until the supplies were higher. And that makes a lot of sense because that brings down the total number of cases. And that also reduces the probability of any variant emerging, which is a good thing. And some recent work suggests that that is actually probably a very good idea to just get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that even from an evolutionary perspective, that's 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 a good idea. But that's, of course, there we're talking about delaying the second dose, but not necessarily skipping it altogether, which is a very different thing as well. In my mind, the first dose from a lot of the trial evidence that we have available, the, the first dose does provide a decent amount of protection. By the time you get to about 10 days after your first dose, your risk of having symptomatic COVID goes down substantially. It's not the 95% that you get after the second dose, but it's probably on the order of 70-80% or so. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that that usually a booster shot is the thing that gives you the long-term immunity. So one of the concerns is that if you just get the first dose, but then you don't get the second dose, then you'll have immunity for a period of time, but then that will decline a lot more quickly than it would if you got your second dose. And so that could put us in a much more uh, precarious situation in six months, say, than we would be otherwise if if everyone was able to get their their second dose. So I think it's really important that the the trials were showed that it was the two doses that gave you the full protection. And so I think that whenever possible, it's important to do that. But it's also no surprise that any with with any sort of vaccination, medication, anything like that, adherence is is always a problem. It's hard to get people to yeah. come back in the doors or to keep taking pills or whatever. And so it's going to happen. And so I guess all we can say is if you have gotten the first dose. I would highly recommend getting the second, <laughs> and and I, I think that that will that will really help both both you individually and and our 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 community as a whole. Great, that's awesome. And I'll put a couple of show notes, uh, links in the show notes, to just about the efficacy to continue. We're helping people navigate this difficult train to inspire them to get the vaccine. It's important. So this is a really global importance to be able to keep the variants down and to get this at bay. And there's great evidence and just help people realize that they're not comparing, should I get the vaccine or not get the vaccine? That's not the right comparison because I've been helping a lot of people through this and they keep going down that path, which makes sense because that's what you're thinking. Should I get it or get it? But it's not that. It's always always reminding them that it's actually getting the vaccine or being exposed to potential of COVID. And then they both have risks and the risks are astronomically higher with COVID. So I'll put a couple of these articles that have incredibly, really good graphs to show the difference of the 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 exponential difference in the risk between getting a vaccine, even something like AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, right? It's one in a million chance of getting a blood clot and comparing it to the blood clots of like one in 20, right? In COVID, it's not even a fair comparison. And that helps people see what they're actually really comparing and to navigate. I'm guessing I'm pretty certain that if your option was get the vaccine or not to get, get the vaccine and the vaccine has nothing to do with reality, you wouldn't get the vaccine because you don't need it. But because there's no point in putting something in your body if there's no no need for it. So that's not actually the real issue. A couple of things I'm always put in the show notes. I think that's what I'm just putting in the show notes. We're going to skip over that. We're running short on time. The last question I really want to get uh, your your answer from, because you said you've also fielded this question from a couple of journalists the past week, was this idea of vac- vaccine breakthroughs. Another concern among, among many people of, okay, I'm going to get vaccinated, but what are the chances that it breaks through that? that vaccine. And I, and I still get it. 
Is there any evidence of what causes a breakthrough? Is it just an utter mystery? Or can we know what people might be a little bit more susceptible to a breakthrough? Yeah, it's it's really hard to know who individually would be more susceptible to a breakthrough. A breakthrough is when a vaccinated person still develops COVID or becomes infected. Again, there, there are different definitions too. Do you count it as a breakthrough if you've only gotten the first dose? Do you count it as a breakthrough if there's an infection but no symptoms? Generally, the most consistent definition that I've seen is in fully vaccinated people, if they have an infection, whether or not it's symptomatic. So we've seen a number of breakthrough infections, but many, many, many of those are not symptomatic. Some are though, and 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 that is to be expected. There's some people won't mount a perfect immune response to the vaccine. They do still seem to be relatively rare, quite rare. And and generally the vaccines are are very protective against against severe disease, illness, and death. And so really I think this is roughly in line with with expectations. And I think really what it underscores is the importance of of getting cases down in the community as a whole, which which vaccination is one of the best things that we can do for that. Because you know, a breakthrough is a lot less likely if you're vaccinated, but it's a lot lot less likely if there's no COVID in your community at all, because then you, yeah. you know, then you can't get it in yeah. the first place. So I think that it's it's really just that. Now there's there's been some questions too. I, there was this question from Twitter about the AstraZeneca vaccine and and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that are based on the adenovirus which is it's it's a chimpanzee virus actually that that they're using as backbone and so there's a question is do you need a booster for these things because maybe your body will mount an immunity an immune response to the wrong thing maybe you're mounting it to the adenovirus instead of the covid virus mm-hmm. but the trials the trials have been run and it's it seems like a single dose of each of those vaccines is pretty effective and so i think that part of the reason for using the chimpanzee virus is is to because it it makes it a little bit less likely that our human immune system will will respond to it, and yeah, so I think that there's there's there can be some weirdness with the platform with the just the way that our immune system works and some of the randomness that's involved in the immune response as to what it actually attacks when it's exposed to something, and that will lead to variation in 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 how robust your immune response is. But unfortunately, we don't really have any good sense of who how, how that plays out for any given individual. And it, it it is probably largely up to just random chance, just what molecules your body happens to produce that day, and, <laughs> yeah, and how okay. it how it how it responds to the to the vaccine. Breakthrough infections will happen. They're rare. They're usually not too severe. They can be, but usually very rarely, and usually only in populations that are have already been very severely hit mm. in the elderly, people with lots of comorbidities, which is still not a good thing. Most important thing we can do is keep cases down. Yep. That's great. Great. And then random question, again, related to this, but I don't know, do you think there ever be a time by which we would be able to like know in the future of, okay, here's your immunity, your like immunity test, like almost like a diagnostic tool, like here in the, this, this, this vaccine will have roughly this kind of response. Do you think there's a future of that? Or is it just something like the immune system is just so complicated that I think, like you said, it, it can really boil down to maybe even the time of day of where your immune system's at. When you get the vaccine, it's not a permanent static reality, but you can get a scan and then you're permanently locked into that kind of response. Yeah, I think history is studded with scientists who infamously claim that something is too complex to ever figure out, and then a few decades later, it's figured out. Um, and so I don't want to get myself into that situation <laughs> where I'll say that, you know, the immune system is, is far, far too complex. It is incredibly complex. I think it's 
Never say never. I think that there are ways <laughs> where we can we can get a better sense of how an individual's immune system works. It's possible. I think that it would be an incredibly big challenge, though. I think yeah. what's more likely is after after the fact. There's there's a lot of research actually even at Harvard that's being done on this by some of my colleagues, where you can take a very small sample of blood and you can get a very good sense of what different pathogens a person is already immune to. And then you might be able to see, say, this person's immunity to COVID-19 is a little bit lower than it should be. Maybe the, maybe this person might need a booster to help give them fuller protection or something like that. I think that's wow. that's likely. And that's yeah. that's something that people are working on a lot right now. The predictive problem is a lot more challenging, but but I think even just being able to screen people for holes in their immunity could be really valuable. Yeah. No, I'm glad to ask the question because that's really cool what Harvard's doing. I'd love to get that blood test someday. Thanks yeah. so much. I appreciate it. I know we're over an hour, longest one yet, but uh, some great questions. Thanks for hanging in there for the full hour, Steve. I know you have a lot yeah. going on. Thank you all for listening. Again, if you can support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, $5 a month goes a long way. PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. Please leave a review. If you want to get a hold of Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter, Matt at Living the Real. If you want to email us, let us know what's going on. Or if you have a question and check out my podcast, Living the Real, where I uh, talk to Angie Long about relationships and love. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you guys all next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.